Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. Like the science that you hear about on mainstream media, it, it only there's only one narrative that's allowed to push science. Um, and I think you had a, a video that went pretty viral that over a million views that YouTube ended up taking two million that YouTube ended up banning. Yeah. So what what is what's their motive? Why do they only want one side of the conversation to have a platform? It violates their community standards. So they gave you no reason as to why they pulled it down? Wow. It's just, it's like state-controlled media. It is. And it get hot. I got a lot of, I got hairy legs that turn, that, 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 that turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down so it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again they look at it. so i learned about roaches i learned about kids jumping on my lap with your host mike paul and i've loved kids jumping on my lap all right canute thank you so much for joining us tonight uh you were ref- oh no problem uh you were referred to me uh from the great gene epstein who um was a recent guest on our show um and after he sent me your name and information I began doing some research on you and, and uh, really liked what you had to say. So I, of course, uh, took him up on the offer and, and invited you on. Um, so I was reading quite a bit about you, uh, and I'm just trying to figure out what it's like right now to be in your shoes. Someone who's been an epidemiologist for 35 years, knowing what you know, um, you've given your entire life study towards understanding highly infectious diseases. What... What exactly has your experience been like having to listen to all these politicians and people on television pretending to tell everyone to follow the science, but only really picking picking one side that really fits their narrative? How has that been frustrating for you to uh, kind of watch play out? Yeah, it's uh, somewhere a mixture of being frustrated and thinking that the whole thing is ridiculous. And it's, it's very difficult to deal with it because you see that the country, the whole economy is run against the wall. Tens of thousands of people are dying unnecessarily. And there's very little you can do. You see people are, it's almost like committing suicide and you can't, you can't do anything except that these politicians are killing people not just themselves. Right. So what exactly do you think the U.S. or actually any country in the world should have done um, right out of the gate? What would have been the best way to try to control the spread uh, to save the most amount of lives possible? Okay. I published that end of March. The most important, the two most important things would have been to close the nursing homes, to isolate the nursing homes, to protect the vulnerable in the nursing homes. And the other thing is to keep the economy and the schools open. Okay. And that's a highly controversial position, as we know now. Um, Can you give your reasoning why that would be better than locking down and the quarantine, all the healthy people? Well, the lockdown was proposed by Bill Ackman here in the United States because, and only for a month or even less, because people were afraid that the hospital system would collapse and the situation would be somewhat similar like in Italy. And I can understand that fear to a certain extent. I would have understood if the economy was closed down for two or four weeks and then reopened for Easter, as one politician proposed. 
(laughs) (laughs) We've heard about that one several times. The economy would have survived. If if everybody has to have a holiday of three or four weeks, this is not the end of the world. But then somehow, and I still don't understand why, people forgot why the lockdown started. And suddenly, it shift, the goalposts shifted. And everybody felt, well, we have to lock down the country until there's no more virus around. Or something like that. Right. And it, yeah. There was no reason ever given. Knut, that was the one thing that has really puzzled me since the beginning. I remember getting on board with what the official story was in March when everyone was kind of afraid of what was going to happen. Nobody really knew anything about the virus. We hear horror stories out of China and Italy. And, you know, so it's, it's okay. We need to lock down for a couple weeks to buy ourselves time to make sure our hospitals are fortified for this influx of patients that are going to hit. And we, they, I remember everybody saying that the peak was supposed to be April 18th. It was like 16th to 18th. They had it down to a science, like how it was going to spread. And we had all of these makeshift medical centers set up all over the country. Like here uh, in Chicago, about an hour from us, uh, the McCormick place, they had this huge hospital, uh, you know, you know, set up made with thousands of beds. And they ended up taking it down without treating a single patient. And they had these battleships that were outfitted with hospital beds all over the coastal cities. And none of these were ever used. So we had one here. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember when, when none of these were being used I, I, and by the end of April, I was talking to a lot of people that were still very alarmed about the virus. And I would say, wait, this is really good news, isn't it? Like the whole reason that we had this, this whole response was we were worried about the hospitals being overflowing and they're simply not overflowing. So when can we go back to normal life? And instead of giving me a scientific uh, reasoning as to why we shouldn't go back to normal life, I was just met with anger and there was no actual reason. And these are the people that shout the loudest about following the science. But when you press them on giving a scientific response to you, they have nothing. We have actually something. On April the 17th, Robert Redfield presented data from the CDC to the White House. And he had a chart there. It showed a peak in December. And that was an influenza B epidemic, he explained. There was another peak in early February. And that was an influenza A epidemic. And there was a third peak. And that was in early March or mid-March. And that was COVID. And that was the lowest of the three peaks. And at that point in time, or the data that he presented were people, the number of people coming into the hospitals with an emergency because of an influenza-like illness. And for 15 years or so, hospitals have every day counted how many people there were. And by April the 17th or so, Yeah, April the 17th, the number of people showing up in emergency rooms had already been cut in half from the peak that was there earlier. So the peak that was shown in the graph was uh, around March the 18th. So it, it takes about 10 days or two weeks from getting infected to ending up in the hospital. So the peak of the number of infections must have been very early in March. So by the time in mid-April, the data was presented, it was clear that the number of new infections was already far down. Wow. And that there was no more risk whatsoever that the hospital system would overflow. Yes, there could be here and there. There could be some stress and one hospital uh, fills up and has some patients have to be moved to another hospital. 
that that is just standard operating procedure. That happens with every epidemic. And that's not a reason to shut down the economy or the shoes, schools. Well, like I said before, someone with your experience, you know, it must be very frustrating watching uh, everyone else kind of For two minutes, I was happy. Right. I thought that everybody would jump to their feet and say, hey, great, it's over. Yeah, yeah, that's the way we should be treating it. We were told we were going to lose, you know, people in the seven figures. I mean, I'm not trying to belittle any loss of life, but, um, you know, we came with their, even with all the numbers they're giving us with the sketchy data, you know, 200 some thousand, nothing to scoff at, but definitely very far from millions like we were warned about. So I thought that should have been good news too. But like I said, it seems like the science that you hear about on mainstream media it only there's only one narrative that's allowed to push science. Um, and I think you had a, a video that went pretty viral that over a million views that YouTube ended up taking two million that YouTube ended up banning. Yeah. So what what is what's their motive? Why do they only want one side of the conversation to have a platform? It violates their community standards. So they gave you no reason as to why they pulled it down. Wow. It's just, it's like state-controlled media. It's, it is. Yeah. It's been so hard to watch, um, just even through the election and everything. It's like, clearly, this is the one side you can subscribe to, and any other voices of opposition or uh, contrary points will be silenced. The Big tech and mainstream media and, and Hollywood, they've all made this very clear. It's just a <laughs> crazy time. Um so I, I, another thing I wanted to ask you about, too, is this uh, the vaccine now that's coming out. Um, so Gene sent me an article that uh, discussed the antibody um, ADE. What was it, the acronym? <laughs> antibody Dependent Enhancement. It's a mouthful. Yeah. Can you expand upon what that is exactly and why that's something we should be paying attention okay. to? So vaccines are there to train the immune system. So if there is a virus coming, the immune system has the antibodies and can fight the virus immediately. And if the virus is being fought immediately, there is no major problem. So, but sometimes the immune system gets into overdrive based on that training. And it may help to realize that we are not getting ill from the virus. We could live with that virus forever. We would produce a couple of viruses. Okay, uh, we can do that. We may have to eat a bit more, but it's not a big deal. However, after about a week, our immune system has antibodies and can recognize all the cells that have been infected. And then the antibodies bind and the killer cells come and kill all the infected cells. Now, if that's a large number of cells that got infected, you have a huge wound and that is a disease. So we are not getting ill from the disease from the virus per se, we're getting ill from the immune system. And if the immune system for whatever reason acts even more than typically, we have something like, I'm using, it's called a cytokine storm or something like an anaphylactic shock. It, these words are conveying the same idea even though it's not mechanistically the same thing. So. Sometimes the immune system goes into overdrive and then uh, it's very difficult to survive. And so we have seen in animal models that the, uh, the vaccine was creating a cytokine storm in some of the people who got vaccinated so that their disease actually was worse than it otherwise would have been. And with the disease like COVID, if you are elderly and already have comorbidities and it gets worse and otherwise would be that you are likely to die. 
So it could be that some people, especially among the old and those with comorbidities, might die from the vaccine, have a higher risk of dying because of the vaccine. Hmm. Now, that I'm not saying the vaccine is per se is bad, right? But we don't have enough data yet. I, I totally the, agree. The Pfizer vaccine uh, is, if I remember right, was about ninety. People it could be that have a couple more now, uh, who ever had any symptoms, and in that particular study that I remember, not a single person died. Uh, so if we have such a small number of cases, and I'm using the word case here in its traditional sense, and if we have only a hundred cases in twenty thousand people, then we don't know yet anything about rare risks. So a risk that has only a risk of 1% or 2% uh, wouldn't be recognizable. But for the majority of people, COVID is not a deadly disease. Mm -hmm. And so um, one could have a situation where vaccination causes more death than doing nothing. That's that's a terrifying possibility. And one another problem is that the major half of the people who die are 80 years and older and have comorbidities. Uh, we heard that in the vaccine studies where people older than 65. That's a difference. Between yeah, 65 sure. and 80. Yeah. And so we don't have enough data. And we're not even sure that we need the vaccine. Right now in the UK, the number of deaths is declining, like in all over Europe, or most of, all over Europe, and that means in all countries, most countries. If the number of deaths are declining, now the same argument that we had before, except that gap is a bit longer, the number of except, uh, infections must have declined long time ago, about three weeks, maybe four weeks ago. So if the number of infections has already been declining, and that is also reflected in the number of cases declining, then we already have herd immunity. So do we need uh, a vaccine? You... Not really. Mm -hmm. Can you, this is uh, a question I wanted to ask on the topic of herd immunity, which for some reason has become a dirty word that everybody uh, accepted as you know mainstream science a year ago, that for some reason now you're a pariah if you bring it up. But so the vaccine is supposed to simulate herd immunity because it makes it, you know, uh, no. less. It, no. uh, that's not that's not the idea. No, uh, it, it's somewhere related, but it's not there to simulate herd immunity. Okay, what is what is the uh, the general idea? Every respiratory virus disease ends by herd immunity. There is no other way. And this season alone, we had two respiratory virus diseases, influenza B and influenza A, who ended by herd immunity. Okay. This is how nature ends a respiratory virus disease. Sure. Right. So I now guess if I... we vaccinate people and do that early enough, then we can fasten the process. So herd immunity comes a bit earlier because some people are or don't have to wait until they get infected. They are already immunized by the vaccine. Sure. So I guess I should have uh, phrased it by saying it's it's kind of an aid. It's a supplement to the natural process. That's more accurate. Okay. So um, on that topic then, so like I was saying a year ago, if you said the word herd immunity, it was well understood and everybody understood what it meant. And now if you bring up the topic there, again, there is no scientific rational uh, response to your point, but you're just shunned. And the the whole idea was um, if you go back to, I remember I keep Googling this and sending it to friends 
because again, the goalposts have shifted so much. But I remember looking in the New York Times, they published an article saying, here's the dotted line that is healthcare capacity. And if we do nothing, then we're going to go way over this line and we're going to have unnecessary deaths because you know all these people are going to get in car accidents and not be able to get ICU attention. And if we do everything perfect, we're just going to scrape that line and go back down. And as that we was know, the first month, yes. Yeah, sure. And and you know, that was the whole rationale for the lockdown. And in reality, we never hit that point. So I would keep referencing this to people and I'd say, okay, um, and, and you know, we had Sweden as kind of an example. And Sweden, much like New York City, who had lockdowns, Sweden took it on the chin early and they had a lot of cases, and then they that paid dividends because then I think it was I'd have to look at the the data, but I think by May, June, July their cases were way lower while places that had locked down and started opening up, started having higher cases and people that, that advocated for this flatten the curve model for, you know, with a without measures and B with measures, the same people who advocated this felt puzzled by what was happening. And it's like, wait, this is your model. You said, if you have lockdowns, you're going to have less cases in the beginning and then you're going to have more later on. And if you don't have lockdowns, you're going to have more cases in the beginning and less later on. So this is as you predicted. And then when their model came true, you know, then they changed the goalpost because it was no longer actually about the virus. It was about some other goal that we're still unclear on. But I mean, how do you, what is that like to you to watch? Uh, I mean, when you were in March and you were looking at the models that were coming out, were you going, okay, makes sense. I mean, in those early weeks, like March 12th to, you know, the end of the month. Okay, I published a paper on March 29th or March 30th, where I said the epidemics in Wuhan, in South Korea, had ended without a lockdown. And what we saw in Europe was that it would also end. And the lockdowns then were coming in general too late to have any effect. Also in the United States, with the exception of the South. So in Texas and Florida and Louisiana and whatever else there is, the virus came one, two weeks later than to the Northeast and to the West Coast. And so the lockdowns there actually flattened the curve. And the benefit we have seen, it was initially flat, and then people started to reopen, and then the delayed events happened. And they had the wave that they otherwise would have had earlier. Hmm. So, so you can't really prolong the inevitable. These models that I published, and they, they, I didn't invent them, I just apply them, it, that what I published was right. If you lock down very early, you can flatten the curve, but then that doesn't prevent anything. It only delays the events. And then if you open, you have the wave that you prevented earlier. And because you have split it into two or something in the end, you're not getting as high as you otherwise would. Yes, yeah, so basically. Uh, so oh, there sorry. is, as I said, if you're really concerned that the health system is going to collapse, then locking down could make sense. But that is the only situation. There is no other justification for any of this, not for lock, shutting down the economy, not for shutting down schools not for wearing masks, not for distancing, not for closing the restaurants right now here in New York at 10 o'clock. Why? Because <laughs> if the viruses have a clock, <laughs> a watch, and they could look at the watch and they say, oh, it's 10 o'clock. Now we have to infect the people. And so our <laughs> great governor protects us from these viruses who infect people starting at 10.01 in the evening when people otherwise would have dinner. <laughs> yeah. It is, it is simple. The level of absurdity is unbelievable. 
Yeah, Nick Nick sent me an article today. Um, was it Ohio? Their, um, their oh high school yeah, sport? you're gonna love this. So in in Ohio, their state their high school state athletic commission said that the students uh, wrestling season is starting, and the students are allowed to wrestle. They're gonna have meets and invitationals and all these things, and they're allowed to wrestle, but they can't shake hands before or after the matches. <laughs> Is that not unbelievable? And I'm a, I'm a former wrestler, you know, so that just, that just cracked me up and, and the ref can't raise the kid's hand, whoever wins, you know? So it's oh. just unbelievable. I mean, and, and it, like so many of these measures, it's not about actually trying to prevent transmission of the virus. It's about taking a knee and showing that you submit to this, this idea that, you know, we are, we're all in this fight against COVID and, and you're on the side of the government. It seems like. A, the absurdity of uh, <coughs> of this is there is <coughs> sorry no there is no benefit in flattening the curve with the only exception the uh, hospitals overflowing actually it is dangerous to do that and we have seen that in Spain and France but most clearly in Spain. Spain had the most draconian lockdowns in Europe. And so they flattened the curve a bit. Enough to give the virus enough time to stay in the population for 10, 15 generations. And if the virus mutates once in a while, the mutation has helps evade the immune system a bit, makes the immune system a bit less effective. Maybe one of the several antibodies we are creating doesn't work anymore. And then that virus has an advantage and will spread. And somebody else will have another mutation that helps to escape even better. And then somebody and then somebody, and then somebody. So what we had in Spain was enough time because of the lockdowns for about six mutations to happen, one after the other. And finally, we had a strain for which the herd immunity didn't work anymore. Our, Our immune system was defenseless. And this is now spreading exactly, this COVID-20 in Europe is now spreading exactly the same way as COVID-19 did in March. Wow. So the mitigation breeds resistant viruses. Nature had millions of years to find a good balance between viruses spreading which actually is good. And we carry a lot of viral DNA in us. We need to get infected as human, as humans. Uh, so that helps evolution. But nature made sure that not many, not too many people die if we let it run the way it is designed. Because if you let it run, it comes for a couple of weeks, two, three, it peaks, it goes down, and it's over. And that time is not enough for a virus to develop escape mutations. If we give the virus more time by flattening the curve, we are creating escape mutations. And then we have the next wave because of the lockdown, because of the mitigation. Oh, wow. Wow. Wild. That's, that's, uh, you know, this, we've brought this up. This saying has come up on the podcast a few times, but it's, you know, the old saying that, uh, a lie can make it around the world twice while the truth is still getting its boots on. And, you know, if you watch the mainstream media, you turn on CNN and they'll give you all these scare tactics and, and talk about just case numbers and they'll cherry pick certain data points that sound bad. And they'll tell people to stay home. And to the average person that doesn't care to try to get informed and educated on the actual science of epidemiology, 
uh, it makes sense to them. But then when you gave us that breakdown where it makes complete sense, that people, they don't have the attention spans. Most people tune into what you just said. I give you another one. Go ahead. I think we all agree that the vulnerable should be protected. Of course. So the yep. vulnerable, we should do the opposite of what some governors did. We shouldn't send infectious seniors into the nursing homes. We should actually lock down the nursing homes and do what the South Koreans did. And they had, I think, about 500 deaths in a population of 50 million. Could be now 510, but it's about that. So they locked the personal in, paid them overtime. Nobody was allowed to get in or out. And they had no deaths. Because wow. if you don't let the virus in, nobody dies. Hmm. Yeah, that, that so makes that is effective. Yeah, that makes so and much more sense. So protecting the vulnerable makes a lot of sense. And if somebody comes from the outer world to interact with somebody who is vulnerable or in other situations, wearing a mask could make sense during that interaction between somebody who might be infected and somebody who is very vulnerable. And we want the virus not to spread there. So we want the virus to spread among the children and the youth in the meantime. Yes. And, and as soon as 50% of the population are immune, it's over. So the masks, that's a whole other topic I wanted to discuss with you. Um, I assume your position is that a mass widespread mandate for wearing masks for all the healthy people is not the solution. And th is that something well, that... It's a solution for the virus. It helps the virus to survive. Uh, it will wow. create a next, will contribute to creating a new uh, version of the virus uh, that is immune or resistant against the immune system. So wow. it's very useful for the virus. Man, you're you're scaring the shit out of me a little bit here. <laughs> I thought I had a good handle on on the whole thing, but you're going uh, levels deeper than I've ever even heard discussed before. Sorry, it's my job. I know what I'm talking about. Right. Oh, yeah. that's, that's the that's the most ironic part is that everyone on the or on the on the television, all these politicians, um, my friends I have that are on the you know, on the the left side of the uh, argument, they all tell me to follow the science. And I'm like, you know, you're the second scientist I've had on in my first 11 episodes. <laughs> so I'm trying to talk to experts and I'm actually taking my own uh, conclusion away. But so far, the science I'm getting and what I'm hearing on the news are polar opposites. Uh, one of the problems that we have is that in the field of health sciences, most scientists are funded by the NIH one way or the other. Uh, the Rockefeller University I was with until two years ago is funded one third by the NIH. And if you know your funding depends on people in, at the NIH making decisions in your favor, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Yeah. That's unfortunate because I hear the same exact um, situation from the the climate scientists. Um, everyone that's talking about global warming and all that, they're they're saying the the reason why all these scientists agree and all that is they they don't get their funding the next year if they bring back information that does not push the narrative that the funders want to hear. Um, and that's just unfortunate because they just they're the ones spreading widespread disinformation on important topics, and then they they got to turn you into the villain when you stand there and take the opposition. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage – 
all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Yeah, and you know what's frustrating is if you these same people, if you ask like why uh, why Americans are so hooked on sugar, they're all familiar with the history of the corn and sugar lobbies, you know, buying off the FDA and then, you know, the federal government giving subsidies to the corn industry and saying that fat is the bad guy. So here's sugar instead. And then people got addicted to sugar and now it's in everything and Americans are hooked on sugar. And that's why they're fat because, you know, these, these uh, big businesses and corporations perverted the science. So they, they know that they have historical examples in recent mm-hmm. years of that happening, yet they can't fathom the idea that maybe that's going on right now with things like climate change and, uh, you know, COVID-19. Okay. So mitigation and it doesn't really matter what it is breeds resistant viruses and mitigation if used by all people takes away the advantage the vulnerable would have if they were the only to mitigate These are two very, very basic principles that everybody in epidemiology 101, at least infection in epidemiology, learns or should learn. Mm-hmm. Um, can we pivot back to the vaccine for a second? Because you brought up a, a good yeah. point that um, that really resonated with me. Uh, and that's that we don't know the unintended risks or consequences of it because we don't have enough data. Um, so, for instance, I'm 30 years old. I have no underlying conditions. I have a 99.8% chance of beating this disease if I get it. Nick's already had the disease, kicked it in a couple of days, no problem. And I would rather take my risk with getting the disease than putting an unknown vaccine in my body. But am I going to have a choice in that? Or do you think they're going to, if they don't mandate it, just make it impossible to exist? You can't get on flights. You can't go in big box stores to the grocery store. Uh, passports. Well, if you're not vaccinated, you would have to be, uh, wear, wear a yellow star, and you're not allowed <laughs> on a plane. Yeah, that's that's my fear. And, and when I'm listening to you talking about how we may not even need a vaccine, um, that's almost like blasphemy to the to the people on the mainstream news to even say that, because um, clearly we all need to get in line. Okay. And what we hear from the mainstream news, what I hear all the time, is. There is no other way to end a respiratory virus epidemic than a vaccine. Wait a minute. Humans have existed for quite some time, as have viruses. And all respiratory virus diseases have ended. How did they end? Somebody was running around with a big bag and collecting all individually all viruses. No. <laughs> they have ended because when herd immunity was reached, this is just the normal end of an epidemic. And Sweden hasn't locked down among several other countries. Um, and the epidemic there was not very different from other countries. So we have the data showing the experience that we don't need to be afraid. Mm-hmm. Every respiratory, and this is not the first coronavirus around. We, coronaviruses are the only differences that now for a couple of years, we can actually sequence the virus so we know what the virus is. Before that, it was just a flu. And we had other coronaviruses before that, and we wouldn't know because if, it, if you don't sequences, you don't feel see a difference. It's okay. just a flu. 
Do you have a, an opinion on the origins of this disease? Is this something that got out of a lab like we've heard, or is it could it be a, a man, man-made like bioweapon or anything? Or do you have any sort of understanding on how it originated? No. No. And I don't care. Right. Just how to how to battle it from this point. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, I don't really think if somebody tries to weaponize a respiratory disease virus, uh, the person uh, must be totally insane because you cannot direct it. Okay. It's like pulling a grenade, basically. It's not really a, a good strategy, right? Because I, I was I was going to ask you that too, and I, I was you know really curious as to if you yeah, even I wanted to speculate. Dr. Strangelove, the doomsday machine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that would be, uh, you create a virus and it infects everybody, and if it's really dangerous, everybody dies all the way, and only those who are sitting with a couple of nubile girls in a, a bunker somewhere and will survive. Nobody in his right mind would create this virus uh, by accident or mm -hmm. would try to do anything with a respiratory disease virus. Okay, that's so fair enough. Yeah, I was, I was just kind of curious, someone in your profession, where the, what the stance was on that. But yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so the, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is I hear come up quite often. Um, it even came up during your debate on the Soho Forum. Your opponent pointed out the Spanish flu of the 1918-1920 era. Um, is that a fair apples to apples comparison to even be comparing this to the Spanish flu? Or is that okay? Is there we anything you learn? In the midst of a world war, mm -hmm. we had no antibiotics to treat pneumonia. And people were shipped around the world and housed in abysmal situations. This was not in a once in a lifetime. This was a really exceptional situation. I don't, and what we have right now is not even close. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's... What, what about the uh, the Hong Kong flu of the late 1970s? It, what what is the difference if you were going to compare the three and the characteristics and the circumstances? Just in a nutshell, you don't have to go at length. But I was curious about the uh, the Hong well, Kong flu. flu a lot of people talk about it. We would be sitting here and talk, and um, now that now we are all dead. <laughs> Straight to the point. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. That's good enough for me. Yeah. Um, so what do you make of everyone talking about on the media right now, how we're entering the second wave and we're in Illinois and, and it's nothing but yeah, fear mongering on all our news. We have now a wave caused by COVID-20 that was bred in Spain and in France, there seems to be another, uh, and potentially in the United States, but we might have bred our own version in the South. So wherever you give the virus, these viruses, these single strain, single strand RNA viruses, they mutate a lot. And if you let them mutate, those that have some advantage evolutionary will take over. That's how evolution works. It's a survival of the fittest. It's not the fittest in killing the host. Uh, that's a dumb thing for the virus to do, if I may uh, treat them a bit like beings. Mm -hmm. uh, a virus actually mutates to coexistence with a host. The best thing that can happen for a virus, it spreads and the host doesn't even recognize it. That's good for the virus. Then the virus can just spread. And this is sense. the best thing that happens for a virus. And this is where, where they mutate towards. Uh, however, if you put pressure on the virus with the vaccine or with whatever it is, if you, or the human immune system, if you put pressure on the virus, then it will mutate to a version that can spread. I've, I've got a question for you. Um, 
so there's been a lot of talk about reinfection and almost nobody agrees on, on, you know, if reinfection can occur of if it's, it sounds like if it's the same strand, if it's COVID-19, it's really difficult to get it twice. But then there are cases of it's, it's not, even if it's the same strand, is that correct? Immunity does not prevent infection. Immunity prevents illness. Okay. Okay. So, so if let's you say are immune, you get infected. However, because your immune system already has antibodies, it will attack and eliminate the viruses imme- or the cells infected by the virus immediately. Okay. So, so follow up question. Are a few hundred viruses and a few hundred cells. You don't even realize that. Okay, so follow up question to that. So if so, I had COVID uh, in the beginning of October. So at this point, with the same, I assume the same strain of the virus going around, could I come in contact with it, get infected but not ill, and yeah, then retransmit it? Was probably was already COVID twenty. Oh, okay. So could I could I give it? Let's say I came into contact with somebody that had it, had symptoms, and it's I I have the virus in my body, infected, but I'm not ill. Could I retransmit it to somebody else? Not that I would get sick myself. I couldn't. Okay, so that's you have antibodies, Mm -hmm. and you have no circulating virus anymore. Okay. Even if you get reinfected, your immune system already has the antibodies. And so your immune system will eliminate the viruses that are entering your body within a few hours. Wow. And you will have no chance whatsoever to spread the virus. Wow. So that's, that's, uh, that's fascinating because I mean, this is, you're giving us the hard science. And for some reason, that straight answer that is very helpful for me to know that I've been wondering for almost two months. It's like, can I get anybody else sick? I mean, cause I mean, I don't bother with a mask or anything like that when I'm not forced to in a store and it's, it's just unbelievable. Now, if I got reinfected, but not ill again, um, I know you like to be specific, which I appreciate, but if I got infected, but not ill, could I test positive again? Yes. So you, so, okay, this is what I've, I've been running into with people where they say, you know, you can, you can get it twice. And I'm like, yeah, I've heard that you can not really, there's no documented cases of people getting sick twice, you know, and, and it's, that's the thing. Okay. So you're infected, but you're not ill and you can't transmit it, but you can test positive. So as long as we keep testing people, we're going to have these false alarms where we have high cases and maybe not many hospitalizations. Yeah. Wow. Uh, In in particular, if we're doing PCR and we are running PCR with many cycles. So at every cycle, the number of virus copies or more particles of viruses is multiplied. Now, it could be that you somewhere got some virus particles, not, not even a complete virus, some particles in your nose and maybe not even from a human, maybe from a cat or dog. Or, and then these get amplified and you get a positive result. So the, the PCR doesn't guarantee that you are infected. It just tells that you have some par- particles of virus somewhere sitting in your nose. This is wild. I'm oh, 40, 45 minutes in, I think I've learned more in 45 minutes than four years of uh, public high school education science. Well, I, I've learned, honestly, this conversation, and I've listened to a lot of people uh, talk about this, a lot of scientists, especially in alternative media, and I haven't heard the science given this straight from, you know, from the horse's mouth of somebody who's actually an expert. And uh, I mean, that is, it's unbelievable to me. I mean, I knew that there was, I knew like that the the testing, that there was a lot, of, there were a lot of problems with it. And I knew that the strategy didn't make sense and there were problems with mutations and all these things. And I knew to be skeptical and I knew roughly kind of what was wrong with the official story. But I mean, this has been very enlightening. Ex- exactly all of these problems that you're mentioning about mutations and testing and all these things. It's, it's unbelievable. And it, I mean, it, it makes me more pessimistic about the, uh, the future prospects because I know that most of the people of the world are not going to care to actually try to educate themselves from people who aren't allowed to speak by big tech and government. I mean, one, I have canceled after over 20 
years, the New York Times. I could not stand the indoctrination anymore. It used to be that the New York Times and other, a few other papers would actually separate reporting and opinion. Not anymore. Yeah. Now, the numbers don't increase, they surge. And now in the UK, the numbers are down by 40% of the cases. The headline, why the number of cases are growing. So they grew now to minus 40%. That, that reminds me of Orwell's Newspeak. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Orwellian, and this whole year's been Orwellian. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I like I said, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. Where that this is your life's work, and here's a time when society needs what you know most, and you're not allowed to speak your opinion. It's no, it's, it's blasphemy. That's a, that, I can't imagine how frustrating that is. Um, but I mean, what do you, what do you? think they're I, mean, I guess you your guess is as good as mine like what is their ulterior motive why why aren't we going to celebrate in this good news that the disease was not nearly as deadly as we anticipated i mean that this should be something we should all be happy about like you said okay. and that we could end it by stopping the lockdowns <laughs> yeah. uh, my i try to stay away as far as i can from conspiracy theories mm-hmm. uh, i lived sometime in the middle east and People love conspiracy theories. <laughs> and right. you can always have one that is more absurd. Right. So what I see is Italy was a turning point. And nobody believed that you could actually lock down the people that you could isolate the healthy in an epidemic. However, in Italy it worked. People did not revolt. And suddenly the politicians had a new tool to use. Hmm. And then there was the chance to actually use it. And everybody used it for something else. So in the United States, it was a tool to turn against the president. Yeah. So uh, what happened when there was the time to reopen, the president said, okay, let's open for Easter. And they made a monkey out of him for that. He's a clown now. Yes. They made a monkey out of him for that. So they put all their ego into no, we have to continue. The motivation was uh, to lift your leg and wetten the pants of the president. Wow. And so now they had put their ego there. And now you couldn't say two weeks later, oh, by the way, the way, now maybe he was right, so maybe we should reopen. So it had to remain closed. And then I believe that the majority of politicians then realized that they missed the right point to exit. So they said, okay, we missed that opportunity. So we have to go on and keep it going because as long as we are creating fear, nobody is asking questions. If we allow the fear to subside, people will start asking questions. So fear has to continue. Yeah, and that's it's really, man, because I, I like to think sometimes I stop myself and go, you know, maybe I'm just a little too far out there. And I'm a little too crazy. And, and maybe my friends all think I'm just kind of off the deep end. Like I might as well be Alex Jones because I think about that kind of stuff. But then when I hear experts and you, like a lot of people we've had in the show that are very well more educated and more qualified to speak than myself, kind of having the same suspicions and uh, I pretty much conclusion of what's going the, out there. The idea was, well, 
let's put up the vaccine as the thing, the silver bullet we are waiting for. Yeah. Well, COVID-19 was already over. And it would have been over if there had been no mitigation, no lockdowns, or even the one-month lockdown, it would have been over in June at the latest. Now, uh, Knut, do you think that when we look at the Biden administration taking over in January, do you think, and this is my hope, and uh, you know, I'll let him have this fake victory, but my hope is that they'll have some sort of half-ass mandate that nobody really follows, and then a month later they'll declare victory over the virus, and we actually will be done with it. But if we don't do that, if we keep the lockdowns going, do you think there's an end in sight? I mean, do you think that we'll see this kind of COVID-20, COVID-21, 22? Like, where does where exactly does it end, and how long can a virus uh, mutate, or are we just in uncharted waters? Okay, let me first say something uh, to the Biden administration. The Biden administration has done one thing that I consider is the right thing, and that is getting a larger group of people together, including some epidemiologists. Now, they are not independent. They're also dependent on government funding. But at least it's not one, or it's not a trio Virat, or a trio of people who are all three HIV vaccine developers hmm. and virologists. So there is now a bit more of a basis, and that is a good idea. The mask, the 100 days masks after the 30 days lock, uh, lockdown earlier this year, next year, a 100 day mask. And I have no trust that this would be 100 days. And mm -hmm. So that was the political thing. The biologic or the epidemiological thing is we're still having lockdowns here or mitigation. We don't let the virus spread. We're slowing down the spread of the virus as if this were anything good, which is not. Because slowing it down, which everybody that wants and the mask wearing would also potentially do, will breed COVID-21. So I'm expecting COVID-21 to come in maybe in June, maybe in May, something like that. Now, when you look at uh, at your colleagues, um, and of course, the only the only epidemiologists that we are allowed to hear from are the ones that are approved by the mainstream media and the corporate press, like we talked about. But I mean, in your circles, how would, how many uh, or what percentage of epidemiologists and virologists would you say are speaking the truth and we're just not hearing from them because they're, they've been deplatformed? And how many have sort of bent the knee and gone along with things to kind of keep their job and keep their, their respect? Because one thing I really admire about you is your willingness to actually stand against the crowd of the, the mindless crowd of people. And the government doesn't fund me. I, have, I can have an opinion and I don't have to fear like the Rockefeller University that if I oppose the government uh, that this would that in the end uh, this would take away one third of my funding so it, you've been in the industry for a long time um, I think kind of what Nick was asking is how what percentage of epidemiologists that you know align with your view and, and are outraged by the response to the disease? Uh, most of the virologists, of, uh, epidemiologists I know are retired and they agree. Okay. Wow. So as soon as you're, as soon as they don't have the purse strings, you can actually, you know, be honest and not have to worry about your, uh, your job security. It's, it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Or your reputation. Tarnishing somebody's reputation is the other thing, which is just disgraceful. No, uh, reputation is, um, that's not the, the issue is if you, when I started my career and you became a professor that was in Germany, 
you would have your department funded with hard money for the rest of your career. You would have a couple of six, seven, eight, whatever people funded, and you could do research. You didn't need to write grants all the time to get money from the government that always depends on the government and the people working for the government uh, agreeing with what you propose. And, but that's not anymore. There is no, when, if you become a professor at a university, you get a desk and access to the library. And that's about it. <coughs> well, well Canute, we're, we're, oh, sorry, go ahead. Everything else you have to write grants for. Wow. Um, yeah, we're, we're approaching the one hour mark. Um, I'm extremely grateful for your time. This has been extremely informative. Um, I'm excited to send this to people I know that are on the left side of the aisle just to uh, see if they'll give it a listen. Um, oh, I'm going to stir the pot with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, it's because everyone says, well, I listen to the experts. I trust the experts. And I'm like, well, here's me talking to an epidemiologist saying the experts all agree <laughs> in the science. But um, so what could people do on an individual level? What's the best way to boost your immune system? Um, anything to take on COVID-19 without government mandates and vaccines and, and mask wearing, what is the best way for people to go about their lives and take on this disease? Uh, the best thing is to move on, mm -hmm. live your life. And then what I'm trying to contribute is we have identified a way to achieve the same thing you can achieve with the vaccine, but without a vaccine. So we said before, the, the problem is not getting infected. The problem is that you have too many, if the viruses replicate too much, the immune system kills too many cells and you're ill. So we found a way to reduce the rate by which viruses replicate by mimicking the benefit of fasting, which would also do that. So we have created a nutritional supplement, it happens to be. It's a combination of two food ingredients that happen to have the effect of slowing down the uptake of things into cells to the rate that you would have with fasting. And that means that the cells have less capacity of uptake or endocytosis to spare, to let the viruses hitchhike, hmm. uh, hijack. And if the viruses cannot hijack the process of endocytosis anymore, it slows down their replication. And so at the end of the incubation period, you actually have much less. If you are reducing the replication of the virus only by 10% per cycle, and that is every seven hours, then after five days, you have reduced it by 80 to 90%. And if you have 80 to 90% less cells that are being attacked by the immune system. You're pretty well off. You have a very mild form of the disease, if any. You may not even notice it. So you have the same effect that you want to have a vaccine, but you don't need a vaccine. You take, the vaccine is an antigen that you are creating to mimic the virus. But if the virus mutates, the vaccine doesn't really fit anymore. Mm -hmm. it, just to clarify here, for our listeners. We're using the actual virus that's circulating, and that could be a coronavirus, it could be an influenza virus, it could be a renovirus as the antigen. We're just slowing down 
the, its reproduction. So the, in the end, the disease is very mild. Uh, j- just to clarify for our listeners, um, just so that they know where you're coming from, are, are you 100% against all vaccines or just this one particularly? I'm not against vaccines. Okay. But I think that this vaccine has not been tested as thoroughly as it should be. Okay. That's it has extremely been reasonable. Rushed, and I don't think there is a good reason to rush it because what we see in the UK and all over Europe is that herd immunity, the much dreaded, was actually faster than the development of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. It has already worked and it will be working here in the United States in a couple of, in a week or two weeks later. So when it's now, the vaccine has been approved in the UK at a time where it's not needed anymore. And I would expect the same thing to happen here in the United States. Okay. Nick, any closing questions? Yeah, and we could do this just really quick, but on the topic of the vaccine, I mean, and uh, this is a, a more fundamental question, but when it comes to a vaccine for a virus that mutates, like we have the flu shot and we know that the flu shot isn't extremely effective, um, or I don't know what your thoughts are on the flu shot because there are a lot of different opinions, but what is just the utility, the effectiveness of the vaccine on, on something that is, from my understanding, a branch of the common cold that's you know very different, but under that umbrella, what is the effectiveness possibly going to be, even if we do get the vaccine rolled out? So this vaccine may be quite effective against the virus strain it was designed to work against, except that this virus strain definitely isn't around anymore. Sure. Okay. And so we probably have the same problem that we have with the other vaccines, that the vaccine that you take in autumn to as a protection against whatever virus is going to come in the winter during the flu season may not be a good fit. And here is also may also not be a good fit because of the mutations. So I, I would expect this vaccine in the end to be as effective as other flu vaccines, doing something, uh, but not being the silver bullet that people are expect. I think it's a chimera, what they're running after. Okay, I gotcha. Well, Knut, once again, I really appreciate your time. Uh, is there anything you want to uh, tell our listeners where they can find your, your articles or anything about you more? Uh, my name, Witkowski, is relatively rare. So looking for my name or the name of my company as Dara uh, would be uh, sufficient for anybody who wants to find something about me. Yeah, Sounds and we'll great. link it. For sure. Yeah, we'll put it in the notes. Oh, and your your video that got yanked by YouTube, that's still up on a certain website, right? Which uh, which yes. foundation had it? Yes. Um, yeah, I came across on the. So I created a website where all my... Um, videos are listed and there I have a copy that is available. Sure. Yeah. So Why don't you can, go ahead and... There's a link you can click on and then you see it. Yeah. I'll, I'll go ahead there are papers website. Perfect. I will link that in my show notes so people listening can click right on that and, and send over there and okay. check it out. So once again, Canoe, I really appreciate your time. This has been extremely okay, educational and, and I'm excited to spread this around. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very you have much. a great day. Thank you. Bye.